from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. Younger trans people had never seen images of older trans people. They didn't have a roadmap for what their life might look like. They couldn't visualize growing older as a trans person. It functions as a book of gorgeously sensitive portraits of queer love. But then, below the surface, it becomes a meditation about what it means to be alive and to kick through the deep difficulties of life. I'm after an intense beauty, and I think this either experienced loss or risk of loss inspires me to live really authentically and really in the present and really beautifully. I'm Sarah Fenske. St. Louis-based photographer Jess T. Dugan's latest book of images has earned raves from Vogue and The Washington Post. Vanity Fair called it one of last winter's best art books. It's called Look at Me Like You Love Me. And if some of the images look familiar, well, in St. Louis, the subjects likely include some of your friends and neighbors. They've also recently been added to the permanent collection of the St. Louis Art Museum. And Jess T. Dugan joins us today to tell us about this book and their work. Jess, well, Welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So Jess, this latest book is your third. It's gotten such a big response. Can you tell us the idea behind this? Sure. So this is a new book made from a long-term body of work of portraits that really centers around the intersection of how we come to know ourselves as people and then how we connect with others in a meaningful and intimate way. So the work in this book is from the past um, five or six years and It's a continuation of these themes. It's looking at identity and gender and sexuality and relationships and community from a highly subjective point of view. And it also combines the photographs with original writings about my life. There are narrative poetic texts throughout the book. So the Washington Post, in its rave, they said these are images of queer people. But that's not entirely the case. There there are a lot of queer people in this book, but not everyone is queer. Correct. And that is an important distinction that I am always trying to make. As you mentioned, I have made a lot of work within LGBTQ and queer communities, and some of my projects have been specifically about one segment of that, such as transgender older adults. So sometimes people put that label on all of my work. But this book in particular is informed by queerness. I identify as queer and non-binary, so it's informed by my own gaze, my own experiences in the world. And many of the subjects are queer, Mm -hmm. and many of them are visibly queer, which is important to me. But not everyone in the book is queer, and it's not only about queerness. It's really meant to be a deep dive into personhood and the complexities of a life and desire and the ways that our individual identities are reflected through the eyes of another person, really how we come to know ourselves through being in relationship with other people. So how did you decide upon um, getting the right subjects for this book? That's a great question. So everyone in this book is someone who I felt an energetic connection to, Mm -hmm. who I felt drawn to. Some of them are very close friends who I've known for a long time. Some of them are people that I photographed repeatedly over many years and got to know more, not only as people, but as subjects behind my camera, my partners in the book. And then there are also people who I just met in passing and felt drawn to. And I think for me, you know, I'm really interested in people who possess a strong sense of self and who have a combination of strength and vulnerability, Mm -hmm. who are really able to be present with me and say, 
this is who I am, this is how I live in the world. And I'm especially interested in that when that identity requires them to work against the status quo. And so that's why there are so many queer people in this book, even though that's not a prerequisite. Correct. Yes. You mentioned that in some cases you might just meet someone in passing and and you're picking up on their energy. What does that conversation look like when you're saying, I'd like to feature you. I want to take your picture. Do people ever assume like, yeah, this is a little nefarious. What's going on here? (laughs) You know, it's interesting you ask because I actually just had this happen. I met a lovely person at the Hilo Cafe here in St. Louis and I was just really drawn to him and I asked if I could make his photograph and he seemed really excited and flattered and then I didn't hear from him for a little while and finally he got in touch and we just made portraits together and you know he, he came said, through he came through and he said he was just a little nervous because he knew of my work but you know I tend to be very direct I say I'm an artist I'm I'm interested in in you would you be interested in making pictures with me and I give people my website so they can take a look and see what they think but and I then, try to be very forthcoming and then you kind of leave the ball in their court you wait to see if they'll follow up I do yes Give because them some my, control. Exactly. Give them some control because my process is is hugely dependent upon the people that I'm photographing wanting to engage with me mm-hmm. on a deep level. It requires their collaboration. It requires participation. I often spend, you know, one to two hours making a portrait. It's very intimate. It's very slow. And so it's hugely important to me that that people in the work want to engage with me. So how do you go about then building that trust? And, you know, these are very intimate images. And it makes sense that with someone like your partner or somebody you've been friends with for a long time, you're starting with a base of that. But someone that that is kind of coming in cold to this project, how do you go about getting them to open up, even if they're just opening up their face? Sure, that's a great question. It's a process that I have worked on for over 15 years now. And for me, that centers around being very clear with my intentions, telling someone what I'm interested in, what I'm looking for, talking about how the actual process of photographing will go. I'm very communicative Mm -hmm. while I'm making images. And beyond that, it's really about the energy I bring to the shoot and creating an emotional space where someone feels comfortable enough to be really present with me. It's a it's a process we undertake together. And I sometimes speak about my photographic process as being almost meditative, where I and the person I'm photographing have to work ourselves into this emotional space together. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, simultaneously, I'm managing the visual side and trying to capture that in a photograph. Yeah, that's a hard job. You almost have to maintain control even when you're trying to encourage them to, to let go of it a little bit. Yeah, for sure. So let's talk about a specific instance. When you announced that the St. Louis Art Museum um, had made a a permanent acquisition of your images, you included a photo of Steve Goldberg and J.D. Brooks, and they were standing in front of the portrait that you took of them. So how did you meet Steve and J.D.? That's a good story. So I have gone country dancing and specifically LGBTQ country dancing. That's a thing. For over a decade. It's a thing. There's a group here in St. Louis. And I met JD dancing. We met on the dance floor and I became friends with him and was really drawn to him. I love his energy. He's a very energetic, outgoing, beautiful person. And then a couple years later, I started photographing them. I, I had actually made an earlier portrait of him alone and a portrait of JD and Steve together. And then the image that is included in this acquisition and in my book 
is from a second shoot that we did together actually during the pandemic. And what about that particular image? That obviously was an important one to you. You chose it for this announcement. It was, yes. So the image, obviously listeners can't see it. It's it's two men standing together. JD's in the foreground and he has his arm kind of clasping Steve behind him and Steve's looking into JD and it was made in their backyard. So the, the background is greenery. It was made at the very last moment before the sun dropped. So there's this really beautiful, soft, golden light. And the look on Steve, uh, sorry, the look on JD's face is so intimate and so assured. Mm -hmm. And it taps into something that I'm really interested in in my work, and particularly with images of couples, of this idea of asserting, this is who I am, and this is who I love, and Mm -hmm. a sense of pride around that. And I feel like that photograph really captures that moment. I chose it for the acquisition at the St. Louis Art Museum for a number of reasons. One, I just love it, but I'm also really interested in uh, representation of queer couples in the museum space and also not only representations of very young queer people. Mm -hmm. So I was interested in having a more, more of a range in terms of who was, was included. So I imagine a lot of you are very curious to see this image. We have put this on Twitter. Uh, If you go to at STL on air, you can see this for yourself. You know, just one of the reasons that we followed up with you to, to make this interview happen is a listener of ours reached out. He had lost his husband very suddenly And he felt like your photos really spoke to his grief and the intimacy of his relationship with another gay man. Do you hear that a lot from people, that they're just, they're almost struck to their core by looking at some of these pictures? That's so beautiful to hear. I was so touched when I heard that. And I'll try to answer your question without sounding self-congratulatory, but I, I do hear that a lot. I hear that my work resonates with people on a deep level. And I think that's for multiple reasons. I think purely thinking about queer representation, we still don't see enough of it and we don't see enough different kinds. So, so simply seeing yourself or someone like you represented can be very powerful. But beyond that, the photographs in this newer book, in my opinion, and where I was coming from, really embody both, both joy and loss, Hmm. both beauty and grief. There are themes of sadness or themes of loss or themes of a risk of loss that run throughout the book. And some of that comes through in the writing. There's one text about a friend who died by suicide. There's another text about my estrangement from my father. But the flip side of that is I'm after an intense beauty. And I think this either experienced loss or risk of loss inspires me to live really authentically and really in the present and really beautifully. And so that's a roundabout way of getting back to your original question. But I think my work, it, it it's complex. It has joy and loss in it. So it's interesting to hear that it resonated with someone after having experienced a loss, but mm-hmm. also because it represented a relationship that that he could identify with. So here's someone else it resonated with. Washington Post photo editor Kenneth Dickerman wrote this, quote, On one hand, it functions as a book of gorgeously sensitive portraits of queer love. But then, below the surface, when you dig in, it becomes a meditation about what it means to be alive and to fight and to kick through the deep difficulties of life. It sounds like he picked up on exactly what you were aiming for there. That that must have felt wonderful to, to be seen in that way. Yes, exactly. I love that quote, and I love that interpretation of the work. 
So I understand in 2021, you had a chance to observe people at the St. Louis Art Museum as they were engaging with this work. Did you see that same sort of thing happening as, as people were watching this? I did. It was really moving to have the work on view here. I had an exhibition of 20 photographs up for about five and a half months. And because I'm local, I spent a lot of time there. You kind of haunted the gallery? Yes. I was there multiple times a week. All of the visitor services staff said hello to me every time I came in and out. It was very sweet and touching. Um, But I did watch people interact with it. And and I was really touched by how deeply the work resonated with people, particularly several of the comments I received about how meaningful it was Mm -hmm. for people to see queer couples and queer individuals and non-binary individuals on the walls of an institution as significant as the St. Louis Art Museum. Yeah. And so we got an, an almost overwhelming amount of positive feedback for what it meant to people. And it also opened mid pandemic and the way that we installed the exhibition was quiet, almost verging on spiritual And so I think it offered viewers an opportunity to walk into this room and be seen by other people and have this quiet exchange, quiet, intimate exchange. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, was meaningful as well. And when you were there observing all this, did they know they were being seen by the photographer? You know, I make self-portraits. So for better or worse, people tend to recognize me. So I usually have a bit of time when I can observe unnoticed, but then I will will be identified. You out yourself. (laughs) Or they come up to me. They figure it out. And in the the show at the St. Louis Art Museum, there were three self-portraits. Pretty hard to avoid your face. I can't escape it. (laughs) We're talking today to photographer Jess T. Dugan, based in St. Louis. Their new book is Look at Me Like You Love Me. This book has been getting raves. Uh, Also had six images being added to the permanent collection of the St. Louis Art Museum. You came to St. Louis eight years ago. What brought you here? I came here in 2014. I had just finished my MFA in photography in Chicago, and I came here for my partner Vanessa's job. She's on faculty at Washington University in the Brown School. She teaches social work. And did you have a sense, oh, this is going to be a place where I can explore these great themes. St. Louis is where it's at. (laughs) I did not in the beginning. Um, I'm from Boston and then was in Chicago, and so St. Louis felt a little smaller, a little a little more Midwestern. Um, But, you know, I've really come to love St. Louis. And it was interesting putting this book together and putting the show together at the St. Louis Art Museum to really take a moment and reflect on how much this place has affected my work. Many of the portraits in this book are of local subjects, and a lot of them are made in Tower Grove Park and Forest Park. So I've been thinking a lot about how the landscape of St. Louis has informed my work, and I think it's had a really, I think both the community here and the landscape here have had a really significant effect on my on my work. And also, I think St. Louis is an amazing place to be an artist. I've been really nourished by the institutions here and the museums and it's affordable and accessible. And so in some practical ways, it's been a wonderful place for me to be as well. Do you feel like as you're taking off in the way you are right now, I mean, this is definitely a Jess T. Dugan moment. (laughs) Do you feel like being in St. Louis is going to hold you back going forward? I don't think so. I think we're at an interesting point in terms of society more broadly, but specifically artists and art careers where things are really shifting. I think the art world is less localized than it ever has been. And I think for me, what I need to be an artist is time. 
That's the singular thing I need. And so I need to be in a place where I can live affordably, where I have people to photograph who I'm interested in, where there's a landscape and environments that work for me. And that's all here. That's great. So you see this being a place you're, you want to continue to be in going forward. I do. I recently recommitted. I decided that I am staying. I like that. A recommitment. <laughs> <laughs> so something else I want to talk about today. Uh, your previous photo book, this was called To Survive on This Shore, and um, it featured portraits of transgender and gender nonconforming older adults. That was a smash hit. Um, it remains a traveling exhibition. It's up to its eighth venue. This is since its release in 2018. The book has totally sold out. That might be a topic that if you're initially pitching it to a publisher, people might be like, wait, you're talking about trans people. You're talking about old people. Like, how is this going to be a, a hit? This tr- you were truly onto something with this. What do you think is the reason for that? You know, that's a great question. I think that the work into Survival on the Shore created representations of a community who had not had those kind of representations made or put out into the world. I think there was a huge hunger for that work. It really resonated with younger trans people and trans people who were on their own journey to come out or figure out who they were. And we received, I say we, because that project was a collaboration with my partner, Vanessa, We received so much feedback that younger trans people had never seen images of older trans people. And because of that, they didn't have a roadmap for what their life might look like. They couldn't visualize growing older as a trans person. And so I think our project and that book, obviously not in a comprehensive way, but in a pretty important way, provided some possibility models and also shared some history of Mm -hmm. people who were really instrumental in advocacy and social justice movements that led us to this moment that we're in today. So the book is actually going into its third printing. It should be out this fall. So people can still get their hands on this. It's sold out for the moment, but that third printing is coming. That was four years ago that that book came out. And as you said, people said they'd never seen images of older trans people. feels like in the last four years, we've seen a greater visibility for the trans movement, for trans issues. Do you think that's starting to change even beyond the fact that you're now in your eighth city (laughs) with this exhibition? I do think it's starting to change. I think we were already seeing greater visibility for trans people and trans communities. Um, you know, I think unfortunately we're in a moment of heightened attack right now, and there's kind a of lot a backlash. Of, kind of a backlash. There's a lot of legislation aimed at limiting rights of trans people, specifically trans youth. So that's a mixed bag. I think sometimes with increased visibility comes a backlash um, and and some legislative attacks. So I very much feel like we're experiencing that. But at the same time, I do think that has inspired artists and legal advocates and all kinds of different people to push even harder. So there's an there's almost an increased hunger for this kind of work, even as there's a, a, a difficult social fight, social and legal fight. So this is now in the eighth venue. Is this going to continue to tour, getting more requests even after that? Yes, I hope so. The The project is touring in collaboration with a local art gallery called Barrett Brera Projects, and we are working to continue traveling it as long as we can find venues. Well, Justy Dugan, I want to thank you for joining us today and, and sharing about this work. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
This episode was produced by Danny Wisentowski with audio engineering by Aaron Dorr. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. This podcast was mixed and edited by Avery. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.